Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're currently walking verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make sure you're aware of a couple of things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way that we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. God's call on my life sometimes requires me to travel to unique contexts and unique cultures. But by far for me personally, the most intimidating environment I ever find myself in is waiting in line to order when I am at this place. There is nothing in my life that causes my anxiety level to go higher than standing in line at Starbucks. Now, full disclosure, I am not a coffee drinker, all right? I know for some of you, I just went down in your book, but get over it, all right? I'm not a coffee drinker. I've never been a coffee drinker. Now, my wife, my wife is a big-time coffee drinker, so much so that we actually had a Keurig in our bedroom for about three or four years. That's how much of a coffee drinker. We all love it when she gets her coffee in the morning as first, as a, as a top priority, right? But, but I'm not a coffee drinker. I didn't grow up in a household of coffee drinkers. My mom and dad were not coffee drinkers. The, the only coffee drinker that I remember as a kid in my family was my grandfather. And my grandfather, I called him Big Daddy. When Big Daddy and I would go to a local restaurant to grab breakfast and they would say, what would you like to drink? My grandfather would say, a cup of coffee. That's how he ordered it. When I stand in line at Starbucks, I have yet to hear anybody say a cup of coffee. It's like an entirely different language. When I stand in line at Starbucks, I feel like I'm in an airport in a foreign country listening to people describe what they would like to have. I looked up a few Starbucks orders. For example, here's a couple of them. I'll take a grande quad non-fat one pump no whip mocha. Here's another one. I'll take an iced half-calf ristretto venti four pump sugar-free cinnamon dolce soy skinny latte, right? Now, now what's really sad is some of you just got a hankering for Starbucks just hearing those orders because you understood what that meant. You got it when when I said that. So, so when I'm standing in line, I've never heard anybody say a cup of coffee. So I'm standing in line, and as I inch closer to the line, I'm hearing one phrase after another, one word. I mean, they don't even have small, medium, and large. It's, it's an entirely different language. So with every step as I approach the counter, I'm terrified. When I finally get to the counter, like trying to communicate in a foreign language, I say, big tea <laughs> with ice. I feel like an idiot because I don't know what I'm doing when I get up there. But, but here's, here's why I'm saying that to you. If we're not careful as, as the church, we can be a lot like Starbucks for new people. 
We can have our own language at times, right? I want to put a sentence up here that's filled with what we call Christianese. Look what it says. I cover your popcorn prayers concerning a divine appointment I have with a member of the frozen chosen about which I have put out a fleece. Now, if you can translate that, you spend way too much time around church people, right? Because we have this whole language that we use inside the church that often can be misunderstood. However, there are some words that we use as Christians that are important words because they are words in the Bible. And we should never be ashamed (laughs) to use Bible words. But even some of these Bible words need some explanation. And as we continue our study together through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, we begin today in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul introduces us to one of the most important words in the Bible. As a matter of fact, in the opening few verses of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to use this word two different times in this phrase. Look at it on the screen. For by grace you have been... What's that word? Come on, that's a good word. Amen. For by grace... Let's say that out loud together. For by grace you have been saved. When we as Christians hear the word saved, we are excited about that word. But it's one of those words that a lot of people really don't understand. So we're going to take the next several weekends and we're going to dig deep into this word saved and what it means. The word saved is translated with this word saved. It's a Greek word that's translated some other ways in the New Testament. But by far, the most common way this word is translated into the English language is with the word saved. 92 different times in the New Testament, this word is recorded in our English Bibles with the word saved. 24 of those 92 times, it's used to describe being saved from physical danger. It's someone being saved from a storm, someone being saved from a shipwreck, someone being saved from physical persecution. When it's used that way, it means literally to rescue from physical danger, to deliver someone from harm. But overwhelmingly, this word in the New Testament is not used to refer to physical salvation. This word is used to refer to spiritual salvation. 75% of the time this word is used in the New Testament, it refers to spiritual salvation. When referring to spiritual salvation, it means to be rescued from sin and its eternal judgment. It means to be made spiritually whole. Both times in Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul uses the word saved, he's using it to refer to spiritual salvation. When Paul says, for by grace you have been saved, he's talking about the spiritual salvation we've experienced in Christ having been rescued from our sin and its eternal consequence or 
judgment. This word saved, when Paul uses it, is used in a unique Greek tense. It's the perfect tense. You say, why is that important? Because when a verb in the Greek language is in the perfect tense, it means action that is completed. It's 100% done, but it has ongoing continuous effect for all eternity. Meaning this, being saved is not something that happens to me over and over and over and over again. You don't have to come get saved every week. I know some churches every week, it's like they're asking the same people to get saved all over over again. But listen, you don't have to get saved. Once you've been saved, it is done. It is finished. But it has effect all the way through eternity. It is a once and for all completed act that is ours in Christ. It happened for me when I was an 18-year-old freshman in college. I was attending the University of North Alabama And I had been raised in the Christian church. I'd been raised around Christianity. But I had to come to a discovery in my own life. And that is that being around Christianity and being a Christian are not the same thing. And as a freshman in college, I came to understand that I had sinned against God. And I remember kneeling down beside my bed in my apartment in Florence, Alabama, and crying out to Jesus Christ, turning from my sin, putting my faith and trust in Jesus. Let me tell you what happened to me that night. That night, I got saved. I began a relationship with God. He rescued me by his grace from my sin. And ever since then, I have been saved. Why? Because my salvation is not something I did. It's something that he did. It's a finished work completed by Jesus on the cross. So this weekend and for the next two, we're going to take the first (coughs) 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at this series that we've entitled, Saved, the Glorious Gift of Being Made New. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, Pastor Vance, I'm I'm not a terrible person. Sure, I'm not perfect. But why do I need to be saved? I mean, I'm not, I'm not a serial killer. I, I'm not somebody who's going to prison. I, I'm not a terrible person. Why do I need to be saved? Well, that's exactly what Paul is addressing as he opens chapter 2. So if you got your Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to begin with me in verse 1. Look what he says. And you were dead. He's writing here to people who have been saved. They've already experienced God's grace in salvation. But he's reminding them of who they were before they got saved. Look what he says. And you were dead... In your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. 
Paul begins to talk to these people about who they were before they got saved, reminding them of why they so desperately needed to be saved. And Paul tells us four things about all of us that answers the question, why do we need to be saved? Here's the first one. I was dead in my sin. Let me tell you why we all need to be saved. Is because we either were or we are dead in our sin. Paul opens this passage of scripture by writing to these people and saying to them, Hey, remember, you were dead. The word dead means what you think it means. It means without life. I know what you may be thinking. Wait a minute, Pastor. What do you mean I'm dead? I'm not dead. I woke up this morning. I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm, I'm, I may be getting sleepy, but I'm certainly not dead. I'm alive. What do you mean I'm dead? How can Paul say you are dead? Well, what Paul is referring to here is not our being dead physically. Paul is referring to our being dead spiritually. What Paul is reminding us here is the biblical truth that all of us come into this world dead spiritually. We come into this world alienated from God. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I've just always been a Christian? I want you to listen to me carefully because, listen, I've heard people in our own church say this. I said, when did you become a Christian? Well, I've just always been a Christian. Listen, 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 listen. Nobody, nobody has always been a Christian. We come into this world dead to God. If you've always been a Christian, the Bible is not true. Because the Bible says you were, there was a point when you and I were dead to God. We all come into this world Dead to God. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let me show you some verses from the Old Testament book of Genesis. I'm going to put them up on the screen. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Let's read what it says. The Lord God commanded the man. What man? The man that he created, Adam and Eve. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God created them to know him, to love him, to live in fellowship with him. Look what it says. The Lord God commanded the man, saying... From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat from it, you will surely, what? Say it out loud. There's the deal, right? God said, Adam and Eve, I've made you. I've made you to enjoy fellowship with myself. I've made you to enjoy a relationship with me. Out of the overflow of your relationship with me, you're going to enjoy fellowship with each other. You're going to enjoy everything else that I've created. Life was designed to revolve around a love relationship with God. But a love relationship requires freedom, Right? If there's no freedom in the relationship, it's not a love relationship. It's a robotic relationship. So he gave them freedom. And he said, I give you the freedom to choose. It was a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat of that tree. There's only one rule. Don't eat of that tree. Everything else you have dominion over in the world. One tree, don't eat of that tree. Because in the day you eat of that tree, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to what? What did he say? The day they eat of it, they're going to. Die. Well, let's read on. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. The Bible says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and what'd she do? She ate it. 
She did what God said, don't do. Then look what happened next. She gave to her husband. Say the next two words out loud. With her, right? Before we get too down on Eve, everybody wants to say, well, Eve's the reason we're all in this situation. No, Adam had been given spiritual responsibility for the leadership of his wife, and he let her be a guinea pig. (laughs) Eve grabbed for the fruit. Adam took a step back, right? Just to watch and observe how's this going to turn out. When it didn't, when it appeared that there was no consequence for Eve, what does it say he did? Then he ate. Big old courageous Adam, right? So then verse 7 must say, and they died. (coughs) Be a short book. And we wouldn't be reading it. I'll let you figure that out on your own. Somebody at lunch is going to go, oh, now I get. What's verse 7 say? Then they died. Is that what it says? Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they made And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. You say, wait a minute. God said if they eat of that tree, they're going to die. Listen, they did die. They died spiritually. You see what happened? The way this is written, the implication is that every day in what the Bible calls the cool of the day, God would come to meet with Adam and Eve. And every day, I don't know how long Adam and Eve had been in the garden before this day. I don't know. Nobody knows. I don't know if it's eight seconds, eight days, 80 years. None of us have any idea. But the implication is (laughs) from the text that every day that they were in the garden, God came in the cool of the day manifested his presence among Adam and Eve, and they enjoyed fellowship with God. And yet they ate of that fruit, and on this day, instead of anticipating the presence of God, they hide themselves from the presence of God. You see, Adam and Eve did die. They died spiritually. On that day, Adam and Eve lost the ability to have a relationship with God. Their sin caused that part of them that had been alive to God to die to God. You say, well, that's a great story. But it happened a really long time ago. What does that have to do with me today? Paul, in the book of Romans, draws the link for us. Romans chapter 5, look at this verse. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Who's the one man? Adam. Through Adam, sin entered the world, and what does it say? Death 
through sin. What kind of death? Well, first of all, spiritual death. Ultimately, it would be physical and eternal, but, but first, spiritual death. Death came into the world through sin. So, death spread to what? All men. It means literally every person. Here's what that means. Every person since Adam and Eve that have been born on planet earth. Let me do the math for you. That's everybody. Everybody since Adam and Eve who've been born on planet earth have been born dead to God and alive to sin. We don't come into this world a blank slate. We come into this world dead to God with a bent towards doing that, which is opposite of what God would have us to do. You say, I don't know if I believe that or not. Well, Paul gives us the evidence here. Here's the evidence, because all sinned. That's the second thing I want you to see here. Paul, not only in Ephesians, says you were dead in your sins. Look what he says next. He says, I was disobedient in my walk. You see, Paul says here, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. He says, the evidence of my spiritual death is that when I looked at my life, trespasses and sins, they're both words that are plural, meaning it's not just one or two, it's many. When I look at my life, my life is filled with sin against God. Here's Paul's argument. I am not spiritually dead because I sin. I sin because I am spiritually dead. Did you hear that? Let me prove it to you. You ever wondered why you don't have to teach children to be bad? Right? You don't bring your kids home and teach them how to be bad. When they come home from the hospital, that came with them, right? You bring this little sweet baby home, and before you know it, you're having to correct that baby, right? Well, why is it that we don't have to teach? Why do we have to teach kids to be good, but you don't have to teach them to be bad? Because being bad just comes according to their what? To their nature, right? We say that's just who they are naturally. You know what we're saying when we say that? It's just how we come into this world, and that's true. We come into this world with a nature that is bent towards doing that, which is opposite of what God would have us to do. And that's what Paul says here in verse 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Because of who we are spiritually dead, we live disobedient lives. And this is not just true of some people. This is true of all people. Every one of us. Listen to the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 3. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've never met anybody. There may be somebody, but I've never met anybody. Never met anybody who would not say that's true. I've never met anybody who would say, nope, I'm perfect. Now, maybe you know that person. I, I don't know that person. Now, there's some people who think they're better than others. There's some people that think they might be really, 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 really close. But I've never met anybody say, I am 100% perfect. 
I've never, not one time, not even on an off day, I've never done anything wrong. You see, we've all sinned against God. We need to be saved because we're dead. And because we're dead, we're disobedient. We live life. We have a nature that is bent towards doing that which is opposite of what God would have us to do. Listen to the way John MacArthur writes about it. He says that all men apart from God are sinful does not mean that every person is equally corrupt or wicked. 20 corpses on a battlefield might be in different stages of decay, but they are uniformly dead. Sin manifests itself in many different forms and degrees, but the state of sin itself has no degrees. Not all men are as evil as they could be, but all fail to measure up to God's perfect standard. If we were going to do a poll this morning, we could find out real quick who were the worst people in the room, right? I mean, we could, it wouldn't take us too long to start putting people in groups. Oh, these people, man, these people are really, they're bad. But boy, these people over here now, these are some really bad people, right? I mean, we could, we could pair up this morning and figure that out in group. But here's at the end of the day what we'd realize. We've all fallen short of God's standard. It doesn't matter if you're over here on the spectrum or over here on the spectrum. We've all missed the righteous, holy, perfect standard of God. We've all stepped across his boundaries. We've all fallen short of his standard. Here's the third thing Paul says. Not only was I dead and disobedient, Paul says I was dominated by the world, the devil, and my flesh. That's what he talks about here in verse number 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Then he says, we all too lived in the lusts of our flesh. The world is this spiritual system made up of values, beliefs, and morals that are opposed to God's word and God's will. The devil is our spiritual adversary, this prince of the power of the air who seeks to steal, to kill, and destroy. Our flesh is our fallen sinful nature that embraces both our fleshly desires and our wicked thoughts and here's what Paul says before Christ because I was dead to God and living a life of disobedience to God I was totally dominated by the world the flesh and the devil I was defeated and Paul talks about this like it was the pattern of our lives he says we walked and we lived this way but here's where this gets really serious not only was I dead and disobedient and dominated the Bible says I was doomed to an eternity separated from God look at the last part of verse 3 and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest Because of my nature, Paul says, I was. It's a state of being verb, meaning it it describes who I was continuously. Before salvation, I sat continuously under the awaiting of the judgment of God. The wrath is the word the Bible uses here. And listen, I understand in 2018 talking about the wrath of God is not cool and it's not 
politically correct. But here's what we need to understand. God is holy. And because God is holy, he will not be in fellowship with sin. As a matter of fact, because God is holy, his nature demands that he pour out his wrath on sin wherever it be found. If God for one moment did not pour out his wrath on sin, he would cease to be holy. And if he ceased to be holy, he would cease to be God. John Stott writes about God's wrath this way. He said, it is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. Because God is holy, his nature demands he pour out his judgment on sin. If he did not pour out his judgment on sin, he would cease to be God because he would no longer be holy. Religion, religion says, well, if you just do enough good stuff, if you just become moral enough, then maybe God would overlook your sin and welcome you into heaven. But if God did that one time, he'd cease to be God because his holiness demands that he pours out his wrath on sin. Some people think, well, I I get this opportunity to live my life, and at the end of my life, I'll stand before God, and I'll find out how I did. Listen, that's not true. Let me show you how not true that is in the Bible. John 3, 18, listen to what it says. He who believes in him is not judged. The word judged here, the verb judged means to be condemned. He who believes in Jesus is not judged. But he who does not believe, don't miss this, has been judged. What does it say? It's the same tense as the word saved in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a perfect tense, meaning it is 100% done and there are ongoing eternal effects. Because of my sin, apart from Christ, I am already judged. Here's what that means. The gavel of God's justice has already come down in my life. I'm not awaiting some courtroom scene where I'm going to stand in front of him in the future. Because I'm dead, because I'm dead, disobedient because I'm dominated the scripture says I am already doomed to an eternity separated from God and the word saved that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2 is a word that doesn't describe an action you and I can do for ourselves it's something someone else has to do for us here's what that means the condition that we find ourselves in apart from Christ there's nothing humanly we can do to change it And that raises another question. Who can 
save us. Let's read it again. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Oh, but the next two words change everything. I'm telling you, the next two words contain all the power of the gospel. Look what it says next. But God. Yes, I was dead. But God. Yes, I was disobedient. But God. Yes, I was dominated. But God. Yes, I was doomed. But God. Look what it says. But God being rich in mercy. Yes, he's holy. But thank God he's merciful. Because of his great love. Yes, he's holy. But he's also loving. With which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. Made us what? Alive together with Christ. Then look what he says. By grace you have been saved. How? How did this happen? Pastor, you said he could not overlook my sin. Oh, he didn't. You said because he was holy, his nature demanded that he pour out his wrath. Oh, he did. Let me show you. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Listen, when we deserve to die, what does it say? Christ died for us. What does the cross have to do with me today? Let me tell you what it has to do with you today. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us. All of your sin and all of my sin was placed on Jesus. And let me tell you what the Father did. The Father took the wrath of God against sin and he poured out that bucket of wrath. All the judgment of God. Listen, he was holy. He was so holy that no matter where sin be found, it demanded his wrath. Even when it was found on his own sinless son. In his holiness, God could do no less than pour out his wrath on sin, even though it be found on Christ. Jesus on the cross drunk the full blow of the wrath of God against sin, and he died for us. But he did not stay dead. He was raised from the dead as a testimony that God accepted his sacrifice for our sin. So Paul went on in Romans chapter 10. Listen what he said. Paul said, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be, say it out loud, saved, 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 saved by but God. 
but God. Listen, I was lost, but God. As an 18-year-old freshman in college, I was headed to an eternity separated from God. I'd earned it on my own, but God, but God. Listen, today, God loves you. Even though you've sinned against him. Even though you've broken his laws. Even though you deserve to spend eternity separated from God. He loves you. And if you will simply call on the name of the Lord. You may be saved. Anybody else in here ever been saved? You ever been saved? Listen. There's testimony. There's testimony that you can be saved. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would speak to people right now as only you can. Holy Spirit, would you do a work of conviction? As you sit quietly before the Lord this morning, there are really only two groups of people in this room. And it's not black or white or Asian or Hispanic or Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal. There's people that have already been saved by the amazing grace of Jesus, and there's people that need to be saved by the amazing grace of Jesus. That's the only two groups of people in this room that matter. If you've already been saved by the grace of Jesus right now, you just need to start praying for those who haven't. If you've never come to know Christ, I've tried to the best of my ability today to present the gospel to you from Ephesians chapter 2. And here's what I want you to know. Today you can be saved. You can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. But you've got to call on him. Just a moment, we're going to stand our feet. Our worship team's going to lead us in a song. The altars are going to be open. If you're a Christian and you know lost people that you need to come and be praying for, I want to invite you to come and get in these altars and start praying for lost people. If you're a Christian and you want to pray with one of our pastors about something in your job, your health, your family, listen, we believe that we experience the power of God when we pray. We'd be honored to pray for you. You come. But if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you've ever been saved, When we stand to sing, I want you to slip out from where you're going to be standing. Come to one of these pastors, and here's all you need to say. I need Jesus. That's it. And we'll have somebody sit down and open a Bible and show you how you can put your faith in Jesus and be saved. You can be saved today. You can be saved today. You can leave here today. Listen, you had not always been a Christian. You need to be saved. You're religious. You're not okay. You need to be saved. If you're lost, maybe you just wandered in here today and you're, you're deep in the lostness. Listen, that's okay. The same grace that can save a religious person can save you. Just come say, I need Jesus. Listen, today's the day of salvation. God, we pray you'd move in your, in your way today. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you'd give boldness to those people that need to be saved, that they'd come, that they'd come, Lord, that they wouldn't be intimidated, but they'd come, they'd run to Christ. 
Lord, I pray they know today that they're an object of the wrath of God, but that doesn't have to be the case. They can experience grace and forgiveness and freedom in Christ because you've already poured out your wrath on them. Lord, have your way in Jesus' name.